0: Good morning. Our gospel reading is from John three, twenty-two through thirty-six, and you can find that in your pew Bible on page ten fifty-five. <clears throat> After this, <clears throat> excuse me. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the Gospel of the Lord.
1: Good morning. <clears throat> um, before I pray, I want to, um, some of you may not know that Gordon has uh, gone to Florida uh, with, uh, with MNA, which is uh, Mission to North America. I, th- I believe he's in Sarasota. Um, anybody confirm that? Oh, yeah, thank you, Ruth. Um, he is in Sarasota helping the work of the cleanup after the dreadful hurricane. Uh, a few weeks ago. So let us be in prayer for Gordon. Um, I'll pray for him right now and then we'll go into hearing the word of God. Jesus, I thank you for our brother. Thank you for his willingness to serve and how you have equipped him to continue to just endure and to persevere and to just faithfully serve your church throughout the world. We pray your blessing on Gordon this morning throughout this time. Please keep him in good health. Help him to get the rest he needs. And Lord, may their work and all the work of your people be effective for your glory and for the good of the people they're helping. Amen. And may Lord Jesus, as we prepare to hear your, your word preached this morning, I pray that you would strip every image, idea, and goal we have for you and replace it with the image of who you actually are. Shine a great light on your message, on your gospel this morning, and may your spirit open our eyes to you, to see you for who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are finishing up chapter 3 in the book of John, the gospel of John. In the beginning of of John chapter 3, if you remember, Jesus encounters Nicodemus. He speaks to one of the greatest, most knowledgeable, and prestigious rabbis in Israel. That's who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus and the religious leaders, he represented rooted their entire collective and individual identity in the law, obeying it, explaining it, adding to it when needed, teaching it, and so on. And he comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus tell this great teacher of the law? Well, Jesus pretty much tells Nicodemus that all he's been doing, all his life's work and efforts have kind of missed the point. He has missed the main thing. Think about how that must have felt for Nicodemus. Think about giving your entire life to doing something. And believing that you are doing what God has called you to do. Thinking that you are doing, you're obeying the law and you're working hard. And you are this prestigious leader among the people of God. And when somebody you find to be very special, who who appears to be very gifted by God. And appears even, as, as Nicodemus says, to be sent by God. You come to him and you want to hear what he has to say about you. And he says, you have no pulse. You need new life, Nicodemus. You need to be born from above. You need to be born from the, of water and of the Spirit. It's similar to what Jesus told the rich young ruler, huh? Remember the rich young ruler? Uh, each of the, uh, of the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this, this. Some call him a rich young ruler and some call him a young man. But coming up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you keep the law. And he says, oh, I did that. I've done that ever since I was a child. And then Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, just sell everything you have and give to the poor. And he went away sad. And, you know, you think of Jesus thinking, you know, oh, you're so close. You kept the whole law. Now just do this one more thing. Just do this one more thing and you're in. It's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying because, and, and that's followed up with what the disciples say. They say, how can that, How can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, "With man, it's impossible. It's impossible. But only with God is it possible. And that's what he's getting at with Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, you knock yourself out with the law. But it's not going to happen with the life of the Spirit filling you without you being recreated in the Spirit. They were missing the main thing, Nicodemus, the rich young ruler. But it wasn't just them. What was the last thing uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus? Remember that conversation he had with him? The last part of the conversation was this. He pulled out that that passage from, from Numbers 21 I read to you last week. Remember when when, uh, Israel was rebelling against God and grumbling and God sent out the the poisonous serpents and and they bit the people and and God gave Moses the, the bronze serpent to hold up that the people may look at it and be healed. And Jesus was reminding Nicodemus of that, that it was pointing to him. But do you know what happened to that serpent on a stick? It appears again in 2 Kings. There's a good king named Hezekiah and it says that he trashed all of the idols, all of the the idol worship altars and the bronze serpent that was given to Moses. Do you know why? Well, what would you do if you still had that bronze serpent? Put it in a case? Invite everybody who's not feeling well to come look at it, come touch it, maybe divide it up and send pieces all around. Typical human nature is what happened. They made it into an idol. And Hezekiah said, Enough. See, this thing only provided temporary deliverance, it was provided by God for a purpose. They made it their own idol but they too missed the main thing. It was pointing to Christ and they were missing that to which it was pointing. Missing the main thing, the point of the gospel seems to be a common theme in scripture. What about us? Seems to be a common theme with us as well. I know it certainly has been with me. How do we miss the main thing? How do you miss the main thing? How do we overlook Christ alone for our ideas, replacing it with our ideas, our images, our goals, our own laws? You know, we add laws too, don't we? We got our own laws that we like to add to make us more pious, more righteous. In John 3, we see that the main thing of Jesus' message, and this is kind of a recap of that whole chapter what we see is that Jesus is saying the main thing of the gospel message is Jesus himself. Jesus himself. That may sound too simplistic. I know it, that, that, that sounded way too simplistic to me. It, when, when it first dawned on me what the gospel message actually is. But that's it. Just as simple as looking upon a bronze serpent to be healed. I'll bet a lot of them thought, that's too simple. It's got to be something more. I sinned against God. I grumbled. I rebelled against him. And all I got to do is look at this serpent. Yes. Jesus and nothing else. The problem is that that we have with this is that the message of Jesus only takes you and me out of the picture. It takes our own message out of the picture. It takes our own perspective out of the picture. And it takes our own abilities out of the picture. The gospel message as proclaimed by Jesus completely empties us of any and all pride, ego, and effort. And we don't like that. Our human nature struggles to be acknowledged, and it struggles to be affirmed. We want to have a piece of the action in our salvation, don't we? This, I believe, is a significant barrier to the growth and unity of the body of Christ today. We all want to have a say in the salvation process. So today's passage, what we're looking at here, closing out chapter three, is a type of summary of John chapter three. We've seen the message: the message "You must be born again," that he says in chapter in verse three and sixteen. We covered last week: Whoever believes in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will not perish and will not face condemnation, but will have eternal life. So far. Think about this. What has Jesus said that we must do to inherit eternal life? What must anyone do to have eternal life? Believe. Believe. Sometimes we make the gospel message out to be, stop it. Do this. Do that. And then believe. Today, we see a need for Jesus to increase and his his servants, us, to decrease. The reason is for the perfection of Jesus. We see the perfection of Jesus laid out here in this passage. We also see the perspective of Jesus in this passage. And finally, we see the power of Jesus, the all-sufficient power. So let's look at this passage. After this, verse 22 After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. And then John the disciple puts this little aside in there, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, obviously, he hadn't been put in prison because we all see that he was baptizing, right? But he puts that in there, and it seems curious, why did, he, why did he put that in there? Well, it's because Jesus' public ministry started after John was thrown into prison. And we see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and, it's, and, and John is believed to have been familiar with those gospels, and he is just keeping people in, in harmony with what was already written about Jesus. Because people may have been reading it who were familiar with with the Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel might say, wait a second, shouldn't John be in prison? When is John going to prison? And so he puts this in there as an aside. Verse 25, now after a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, which is interesting also. What you have here is you have John baptizing with his disciples as he always has been. And then you have Jesus and his disciples off baptizing at another part. And in fact, it says later in chapter 4 that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. But it's saying that Jesus was baptized, his disciples were baptizing through the name of Jesus. This appears to be a, an introduction, this talk of purification, appears to be an introduction of Jesus' ministry versus John's ministry. Perhaps this Jew was saying, hey, wait a second, why is he baptizing and, and you're baptizing? What's, and, and what about Jewish purification? They started having a discussion about this. And John's disciples seem to be feeling a little bit slighted by this. In fact, they go to John almost like they're in competition with Jesus. And they go to John, they say, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, they don't even say Jesus. He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. That sounds like a complaint, doesn't it? It's exactly what it is. They're complaining, they're saying, wait a second, we've been here doing this. We were here before he was and we were here with you. We were baptizing, and now he's off, and, and people are running to him. They even use hyperbole, saying, everyone's going to him. Well, obviously it says that people were also going to John, but they're just saying that everyone's going to this guy. John's disciples are concerned about people leaving John, or perhaps leaving them. John himself, though, was not concerned. He was rejoicing. John's disciples heard his message that he was not the Christ, that he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He came before to announce Jesus. He came to introduce Jesus, to make way for the Son of God. Perhaps his disciples loved introducing Jesus. Perhaps they loved being a part of that, but now felt a little bit threatened seeing him take over. All along, John was saying, this this should happen and it will happen. But his disciples weren't rejoicing. They were complaining. And John answered and said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given to him. John had a perspective that was right in line with the gospel. He said, look, I was given this this call by the Lord, by by God himself. And nobody receives any calling without receiving it from above. Any calling you or I receive. Anything that we are given. May we have that same perspective of recognizing that all that is given to us is given to us by God. The bronze serpent was given by God. He was given for a time. John the Baptist, his ministry was given by God. It was given for a time to fulfill God's purpose. Your ministry, your calling, your job, your finances, whatever they are, are given to us all by God for a time. And John says this, You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He goes into the wedding, the the bridegroom metaphor here. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This is all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 62 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea chapter 2, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. This This wedding imagery is throughout the Old Testament and also into the New Testament. And John here is saying, I'm simply the best man. And you know what the best man's role was? The best man's role was really making sure that the wedding all went off without a hitch. Organizing things, making sure that everything was set up for the bridegroom so he could receive his bride. And it was, it was the best man, I'm sure they didn't call him best man in those days, but it was, it's, it's the same thing. The best man, what he did, was he served the bridegroom for his purpose. He says, I attend to the groom, I make sure the wedding plans are set and then... What I do, as I was called to do, I step aside and I've completed my call. I have completed my call with attending to the groom. I must decrease and he must increase because this joy of mine is now complete. I'm done. I'm good. And he's joyful about it. He has the perspective that God has placed upon him and the calling that God has placed upon him. The word by the way when he says he must increase but i must decrease this is referred to as as, as a divine as a divine uh, imperative it's saying that this is god's will it's not that this is just what i feel this is what god called me to do i am doing what god called me to do and what god has called me to do at this point now is decrease i must fade away while the sun must shine brighter How can I turn from it? This is God's will. Why? Because Jesus is the main thing. He is the center of the gospel. He perfectly carries out the promise of eternal life. And we can believe his message because of his perspective. In our lives, he must increase. In our families, Jesus must increase. In our church, Jesus must increase. That might sound like, no kidding. But I think it's something for us to reflect on. How are we elevating Jesus in our, in our own lives, in our families, and in our church? How are we doing that? It is God's will that he increases. And then we see the perspective of Jesus that John points out here in verse 31. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Tim Keller gives us this image of of being up in an airplane and being over the mountains, over this windy road in the mountains and seeing a line of traffic and seeing a car getting ready to pull out and seeing cars oncoming. And he says the person who's up in that plane, the person who is up above can see what's going to happen. He has a perspective that nobody else has down on the ground. That's just a a, a human example of how we can have uh, a perspective from above. But Jesus has an eternal perspective coming from the Father himself. He has a perspective knowing our lives, knowing what's going to happen, knowing where we are, who we are, and, and the progress of his promise and his plan. He has all of those things stored up in his own knowledge And what Jesus tells us comes from a perspective that is from God himself, for he is God incarnate. To say that that he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way is just speaking in in the more limited sense. He's saying any of us who speak from the earth, we're speaking just on on ground level. We don't have the perspective of the Holy One. And he who comes from heaven is above all he bears witness to what he has seen and heard yet no one receives his testimony jesus told this to nicodemus as well he says what we hear and we see we tell but you don't accept it you don't receive it he speaks what he knows jesus when he speaks he speaks from god's perspective and because jesus comes from the father because he is god incarnate he speaks from an eternal perspective he speaks with unlimited knowledge unlimited power And finally, we see the power of this message. In verse 33, he says this, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. Sets his seal. We just got an invitation this week with a wax seal on it. It's sealed. And sets a seal that God is true. True. What's being said here is if we receive Jesus' testimony, if we trust that Jesus is who he is, coming from God, then what he says comes from God, then when Jesus speaks, so does God. And when Jesus speaks truth, he's speaking God's truth. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The prophets were believed to to not have the fullness of the Spirit, but God has given Jesus the Spirit without measure, and he has the the, the full measure of the Spirit to give to his people. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the power of the message of Jesus. The power of Jesus is is that he possesses eternal life. The eternal life that we lack without him. In our condemnation, in our humanness, we are destined for death. We are under God's wrath, the Bible says. And yet, we can receive eternal life because of the righteous one that came from God, the possessor of that life, who has the power not only to come down and be a human being, but the power to give us his life. To give us his life. Because we did anything good? Because we kept the law? No. Back to 3.16. Because he so loves us. Because he so loves us. I think about the centrality of the gospel and the main thing of the gospel being Jesus and Jesus alone. Reminded me last night, Christy and I had a conversation at a school party, parents' party, with a woman from our, uh, from, well, she was a mom, and I walked up and Christy was already having a conversation with her and she was uh, talking about a Bible study that she was attending And it was really cool hearing a a parent from this school saying they're attending a Bible study. We don't hear that much. So that was great to hear. But then she said, I'm the only liberal in the bunch. And she shared with us her views on abortion and said she shares her views on abortion, you know, that I think the government should just, you know, stay out of it and people should make up their own minds. And she said, and those women, they're all conservative. I'm the only liberal there. She said... They listen to me, and they talk with me. And they study the Bible with her. Even though they were pretty conservative in her words, she sounded pleasantly surprised by that. Because she was studying the gospel with these women. I don't know the women she's studying the gospel with, but she's studying the Bible with them, and they're loving her. What was described there was sounded to me and sounded to Christy like a gospel-centered Bible study, a Christ-centered Bible study. See, we're not called as, as as God's church. We're not called as Christ's church to declare the message of stop it. We're not here to declare the message to somebody who walks in who doesn't know Jesus to try harder, to be a person of integrity, to change your political views. Get your gender figured out. Become an activist. Or don't become an activist. Or be pro-life. Or name whatever righteous political peeve you have. We're not called to say that. We're not called to bring that message. That's not the gospel. Are those conversations that could be had post-gospel? Yeah. That's doing community together. But that's not the gospel. Those messages only bring division and breed hatred, in my opinion. This may feel unsafe. It may even sound risky to talk to people about Jesus before discussing their lifestyle. If so, if it feels unsafe, if it feels uncomfortable, then perhaps we're starting to understand the depth and the power of the grace of God. Of how rich the grace of God is in our lives. What was the message for the thief on the cross? Remember the thief on the cross? What'd he do? Anyone know? I don't know either. I believe the Bible purposely doesn't tell us what he did. But what did Jesus do? When he called on Jesus, when he believed in Jesus and called on him, Jesus welcomed his faith. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What could this man do? Give to the poor, and then you'll be with me in paradise. He was dying. And Jesus received his faith. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is the gospel we're called to to proclaim. Teens, anyone in school, the gospel of Christ is not calling you to reject certain people at your school. It's not calling you to be a good student. It's not calling you to even be respectful. Your parents may say that. But it's calling you and it's calling me to believe in Jesus. It's saying we're all broken. Come to Christ. Because when we come to Christ, we have that eternal life. We have the eternal life that he has all the power to give us. He came to give us a purity that we could never create for ourselves. We can try our hearts out, all of our lives. But we'll never be pure. We'll never be righteous. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Are you divorced? Have you had affairs? Are you an alcoholic? Jesus is reaching his arms out to you. And he's calling us to do the same. May the love of Jesus and the power of the gospel and the fellowship of his spirit be with us. And may we share that lovingly, and joyfully and generously with one another and with our community let's pray jesus thank you for your message lord jesus we love you help us to love you more we believe in you help help us in our unbelief and lord again we pray that you would breathe fresh wind and fresh spirit into our hearts May we worship in joy. May we worship in spirit and truth. And may we love one another with the love that you first gave us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.